Father, we praise you. We thank you for your incredible plan. How because of Jesus Christ, we're washed clean, declared righteous, not because of our own works, because of what Jesus did for us. And we're grateful. We do apologize because sometimes we still mess up. We ask that you'd brush us off. And today, teach us what it means, uh, this whole idea of being cleansed in Christ. Teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To turn to Zechariah chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, page 539 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. It's our gift to you. And we're going through Zechariah verse by verse. And today we are looking at this topic, Satan, God, and guilt. And so I thought it would be a good idea to start out with a cartoon. How many of you like cartoons? Okay. See if you recognize this one. Guess where I am right now? Uh Uh-huh. In the bag. Still think I'm not the victim here? Watch. It gets better. Oh, he's doing his own theme music? Big, dumb, and tone deaf. I am so glad I was unconscious for all of this. Mission accomplished. trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. I'm going to lead you down the path that rocks. I'll come off it. You come off it. You. 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 You infinity. Ah. Listen up, big guy. I got three good reasons why you should just walk away. Number one, look at that guy. He's got that sissy stringy music thing. We've been through this. It's a harp, and you know it. All right. That's a harp, and that's a dress. Robe. Reason number two. Look what I can do. <laughs> but what does that have to do with me? No, no. He's got a point. Listen, you guys. You're sort of confusing me, so, uh, be gone. Uh, or, uh, you know, however I get rid of you guys. That'll work. Um, what's with the chimp and the bug? Can we get back to me? Not sure what the bug had anything to do with it, but now that is typically a lot of people's view of Satan, isn't it? You know, uh, he is just a comic strip or whatever, really a figment of our imagination, not real. Uh, The modern world doesn't believe in Satan, and it doesn't believe in guilt. Materialism is the philosophy of our day. That's the belief that that which we can 
touch and hear and see the physical realm. That's what's real. If there is a spiritual realm, it's less real than the physical realm. That's materialism. That's what the world is bought into. And determinism is the psychology of our day. That's the belief that everything that I do, everything that happens, it's all based on something previous to me, whether it's genetics or experiences. So no one is really at fault. And that's where our world is. But even in Christian circles with easy believism, we want guilt-free messages. But according to our passage, Satan is real. We are guilty. And God has a plan. Let's look at it. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. This is the fourth vision of Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah is speaking uh, to the group of Israelites who have come returned home from their Babylonian exile. After their punishment, they were able to come home, but they still haven't finished building the temple yet. And here in our passage, we have Joshua the high priest. Joshua, now this is not the Joshua in the book of Joshua, okay? That would be hundreds of years before this. So Joshua the high priest, he's the one who is supposed to begin the sacrificial system again for the, for the Jewish people in order to provide forgiveness of sins for them. That was his job. But here we see him standing on trial, not fit to offer the sacrifices. And so we see the problem. It starts out with Satan. And Satan is the accuser. If you look at verses Verse 1 here, it says, Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Satan, it means the adversary. Uh, It's also similar to the verb, uh, which means to accuse. But where is Satan in this passage? He's in heaven in the presence of God. That's what's going on here. And so how does that work? We, we see the, something similar to this in the book of Job. If you look at Job chapters 1 and chapter 2, I want to look at chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. I don't think I have a page number for that, but it's like right in the middle of your Bibles, okay? So Job chapter 
1. In Job 1 and 2, this is a behind-the-scenes look uh, at Job that Job never sees and the troubles that he experiences are because of this. And look at what it says in Job 1, verse 6. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Now in the book of Job, Job is actually innocent. That's what we discover. And Satan is accusing him incorrectly, inappropriately. And he's actually challenging God, is there real worship? Can real worship take place? Because he only worships you for what he can get from you. And that would not be real worship, would it? Now, just a uh, uh, spoiler here, Job wins, okay? He shows, he continues to worship God even though everything is taken from him. But look at where Satan is, okay? Satan is in the presence of God. He comes and goes into heaven. And that's what we see in Joshua. Only with Joshua, he is guilty. Satan is accusing him before the Lord. Satan is found throughout the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, we see him showing up where he tempts Adam and Eve to sin, which is what brought about the destruction of our world. But we also see even then he's accusing, but he's accusing God to Adam and Eve. So he's accusing God. He's saying, that God, he's holding back from you. That's what he does. And by the way, doesn't he do that today? He causes people to think it's all God's fault, that God is the bad guy in all of this. Satan, the accuser, up in heaven. But he does get cast out of heaven. In fact, look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. It's the last book of the Bible. Revelation 12, 9, we see this episode being described. And it says... So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. No one who deceives, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Now in this passage, the question is, when does this happen? When does Satan get cast out of heaven to where he's no longer allowed there? And I think that Luke chapter 10, verse 18, gives us perhaps a help in that. Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 18. 
This is the, in the context here. Jesus has sent out 72 people to go, of his disciples, to go and deliver the, uh, heal the sick and cast out demons and pre- present the gospel. And this is, uh, so we'll start in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Verse 18, he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I believe this is when Satan was kicked out. It's in the time of Jesus in his ministry. I think John 12, 31 would substantiate that as well. That Satan, though prior to Jesus' coming, was allowed in and out of heaven to accuse us before God. Now because Jesus has come, he's been kicked out of heaven. He's no longer able to accuse us before God, but he does, while he's on earth, accuse us to our face, doesn't he? You ever heard that voice? How rotten and lousy of a person you are? That's Satan. It's very important for us to understand Satan wants us to feel hopeless when we're guilty. That's what he wants. Let me read from Stephen Rummage's commentary. He says, Satan's purpose is to accuse him. In Hebrew, the name Satan and the verb accuse are forms of the same root word. Satan's very name means that he is an adversary and an opponent. His nature is always to malign and attack God by slandering and accusing God's people. Here, Satan is pointing to Joshua's guilt, represented by his filthy clothes, and saying, in effect, there's no hope for him. He's guilty of evil and sin. He can't serve. God. And that's the voice of Satan. It's very important for us to know the difference between Satan's condemnation and God's conviction. And there is a big difference. And the way you can tell the difference is Satan presents it as hopeless, whereas God says there is great hope. You have sinned. You need to repent, but I can forgive you, and I can help you overcome this. You can do it through my strength. And so you notice the hopefulness in God's conviction as opposed to the hopelessness of Satan's condemnation. Satan wants us to feel hopeless when we are guilty. But back to our passage here. What is God's response? He rebukes Satan. Love this. Look at this. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick stick snatched from the fire? And so here we see the Lord rebuking Satan. In Jude chapter 9, we see something similar where the angel Gabriel rebukes Satan. In James chapter 4, verse 7, it tells us that we are to resist Satan. Look at James 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So notice here, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's calling us. This is, we're to resist the devil. We're to rebuke the devil. But how does that work? How do, what does that look like? Look at uh, Mark chapter 1, 
verse 25. Here we see Jesus giving us an example of how and what it means to resist or rebuke Satan. Mark chapter 1, verse 25. This actually took place in the synagogue, so you could almost you could say a demon manifested in church that day. And this is how Jesus dealt with it. Verse 25, Mark 1. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. Notice here, there's no long, drawn-out hours or days-long exorcism. That's all in the movies. It's not in the Bible. Jesus simply said, be silent and come out of him. Be silent. It literally just means shut up, get out. That's how you rebuke Satan. If you recognize he's hassling you, if there's something going on, shut up, get out. You don't go further than that. In fact, Jude verse 9 warns us of going further than that. This is how we deal with the demonic realm. Satan hates us. Look at God's response. In our passage, God rebukes Satan, and he is forced to be silent. See that? Just standing there. Can't say anything. Forced to be silent. You see, God and Satan are not two equal powers pitted against each other. This is no Zoroastrian dualism. This is not yin and yang. God is sovereign and Satan is forced to be silent. In Stephen Rummage's commentary, he says, the end of verse 2 reveals the foundation for the Lord's rebuke. First, the Lord had chosen Jerusalem. That's what it says in verse 2. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. By his grace and love, God had shown favor to Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Second, the Lord specifically identified Joshua as a burning stick snatched from the fire. The fire suggests the judgment of the Babylonian captivity. While Joshua's people had sinned and had suffered because of that sin, God was offering hope through repentance. This truth corresponds to one of the major themes of this book, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Chapter 1, verse 3. God had been faithful to bring his people out of exile, and he was not going to abandon them now, not even when they were covered with the filth of their sin. You see, we see Satan is the accuser, but then we also see in verse 3 that Joshua is guilty. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Tzoyim is the Hebrew word there. Tzoyim garments are clothes stained with excrement. That's what it actually means. Uh, let me read from George Klein's commentary. He says, nevertheless, Joshua stands humiliated before the angel, and presumably the Lord as well, wearing excrement-covered priestly raiment. The NIV translates the Hebrew tzoyim in a diplomatic fashion, so does our translation, although the term in question certainly refers to excrement. 2 Kings 18.27 presents one of the clearest and most shocking uses of the term, 
men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine. While this scene utterly appalls the reader at the levels of hygiene and social stigma, the theological significance goes still deeper. That's what's going on here. He's covered with his own poop. It's disgusting. He's guilty. That's what it's referring to, this vivid picture. Now, almost the opposite of what I said at first with Satan, Satan wants us to feel innocent when we're guilty. You see, he wants us, if we do feel our guilt, he wants us to feel hopeless in our guilt, but he also doesn't want us to feel guilty at all. He wants us to feel innocent when we are guilty. And by the way, this is the most dangerous place to be in because it avoids repentance. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to confess our sins. Satan doesn't want us to feel guilty. He wants us to feel innocent. I want you to turn to Psalm 32, verses 1 through 7. We see a prayer of David in this uh, about sin, and we see how we can confess our sins to God and, and, and what it means to experience this incredible forgiveness and cleansing. David prays in Psalm 32, he says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. It's incredible to be forgiven, to where he doesn't hold us to our sin, Right? To be forgiven, that's what he's talking about here. How joyful. But look what he says after this, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle for my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And did not conceal my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Notice when he confesses his sin to the Lord. You know, that's what he says here. When he confesses sin to the Lord, then he forgave him. Verse 6, therefore let everyone who's faithful pray to you immediately. Repent immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Selah. Notice like what we saw, saw last week when we saw the protection that God offers, that, wi- that wall of fire that he spoke of in chapter 2. That protection comes when we have a heart of repentance. When we're convicted of our sin, we don't hide it. We say, oh, Lord. Forgive me. And he instantly forgives and does not charge us. This is a great passage. But that's what we're seeing here taking place with Joshua. Joshua is guilty. Uh, This is how, by the way, we begin our walk with the Lord, but also a lifestyle for the believer. This repentance and 
Guilt is a genuine gift from God. This is a gift from God. He brings the conviction. We feel the guilt. We come to him. We say, I'm sorry. He forgives us. Genuine guilt is a gift from God. Once again, Stephen Rummage gives us an illustration that I think you'll enjoy. He says, when I was a kid, after our family enjoyed a meal at my grandmother's house, I would sometimes get drafted to help wash dishes. Standing next to my grandmother at her kitchen sink, I would usually wash the dishes while she did the drying. I would scrub a plate or a pot and hand it over to her to dry and put away. Every now and then, I would hand a dish to her only to have her hand it back to me. She would say softly, Honey, I'm sorry, but this one is not clean. Anytime my grandmother did that, I had a few choices in how to respond. I could have countered angrily, This plate is clean to my satisfaction. Get over it. But I never would have said that, even if the plate looked completely clean to my eyes. I loved my grandmother too much, and I feared her punishment too much to do that. I could have become crushed and humiliated when she handed a plate back, thinking that I was a hopeless failure at washing dishes. But I knew my grandmother loved me too much to make me feel that way. Instead, I would take the dish back, ask her to show me the unclean spot, and rewash it. Sometimes I would realize I I didn't have the ability to find the spot or scrub the plate like my grandmother could. That was typically when she would say, Honey, you dry, I'll wash. And she would get it clean. Genuine guilt is a gift from God. When I joined the Navy, my pastor gave me a pocket Bible, and he wrote in it, he signed it, but he also put in a warning. This is what he wrote. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And there's some truth to that. You see, I've found inevitably that people living in sin don't read the Bible daily. It's too convicting. But as we read the Bible and we get convicted and we confess to God and we sense the cleansing and the forgiveness, it's awesome. This is God's gift to us. So Joshua is guilty. But the last part, verses 4 and 5, Jesus cleanses us from our guilt. Look at verse 4. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. Now remember, as we've seen before, the angel of the Lord, this person, this mysterious person found throughout the Old Testament is a theophany. It's actually a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus cleanses us from our guilt. This is a vivid picture of redemption. Washed clean, new clothes, clothed in the righteousness of Christ not our own righteousness. Now in this we see that sin needs to be both forgiven 
and cleansed. It needs to be forgiven because it's an affront to the righteous God. But it also needs to be cleansed because it's a defilement to us. You see, we're both guilty and dirty, and we can't clean ourselves. You ever see the movie, the trilogy of the the Bourne trilogy, Jason Bourne? Okay, one of them, uh, there was, in one of them, they had Jason Bourne trying to wash the blood off of his hands, and he couldn't get it off. And I thought that that was a great illustration of we can't clean ourselves. We can't take care of our own sins. The So many people, they turn to the, the self-help gurus who tell us how wonderful we are and how great we are. And if we just go from within, we can find the strength and be able to accomplish everything that we possibly want to do. And that is not what the Bible teaches. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, Our righteousness is as filthy rags. So if we, our righteousness is nothing, no, we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is perfect righteousness. When you turn to Christ, you're completely forgiven, washed clean, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 speaks of this and brings in how baptism uh, configures into the uh, plan of God. Look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. It says, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. You see the picture? The clothing, the new, uh, what he called festive robes, the, 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 the robes of Christ's righteousness. That's what we're clothed with in baptism. Uh, baptism deeply portrays the forgiveness of and the cleansing, both aspects of our need. Uh, it, it, it proclaims the forgiveness, which is why it must be by submersion. In every instance of the Bible, it was always submersion because baptism is a burial where we surrender to Jesus by dying to the old way of life and rising again in newness of life to live for him. Look at uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. It describes baptism in this way. In Romans 6, verse 3, he says, Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. You see the picture. Baptism, it's a burial. You're dying to the old way of life, and you rise again in newness of life to live for him. That's why it must be by some but it also must be with water because the water signifies the cleansing. We don't need to just be forgiven. We also need to be cleansed. And Christ completely, we no longer feel dirty from our sin. We're completely cleansed, washed clean. You see, if you have sinned, no matter what the sin, and you repent and trust in Christ and him alone for your salvation. Outwardly expressing that faith in baptism, you're completely washed clean as if you had never sinned. 
white as snow is how Isaiah describes it. And then uh, we see this, and that's how God sees us, no matter what Satan tries to say to you. This is how God sees us. Now, when we're clothed in Christ, we're ready for service. Look at verse 5. Then I said, this is Zechariah, all of a sudden he jumps in. He says, let them put a clean turban on his head. Good idea, Zach. Get the turban. You're like, what? Okay, put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. You see, the turban, that was the, the, the hat of the high priest. He could serve as the high priest and bring about, you know, through that ministry, the people in the Old Testament could receive their forgiveness of sins. So, But he was able to do this now because he was declared clean, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And by the way, I believe that Joshua, the high priest, really represents all of us. This is our need, all of us, isn't it? And God has a different plan for each of us to serve him, but we need this initial cleansing and forgiveness. And then throughout our lives, as we live out this life of repentance, cleansing and forgiveness, then we can serve the Lord, and he has an incredible plan for us to do that very thing. When we are born again, we are forgiven, cleansed, and prepared for service. We then live a lifestyle of repentance faith, and service to the king. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 brings this out. Most people know of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 because it brings out the clear teaching that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ, and it has nothing to do with our works. But most people, or some people, are not familiar with how it ends in verse 10, so let's read them together. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Then he continues, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. He has these incredible plans just for you, that only you can fulfill. And he's called you to do this work. He's putting the turban on your head, ready for service. And that's his plan, okay? Satan wants you to either feel hopeless or guiltless. God wants to wash you clean and put you to work for the kingdom, When a whole church turns to God in repentance and begins to live this out, a lifestyle of repentance, receives his forgiveness and his cleansing, and then reaches out in the power of the Holy Spirit to serve God, especially by rescuing a lost and dying world, then revival comes. Let's pray. Father, we we see this picture of Joshua, and all of us can relate. We've all sinned and fall short of your glory. All of us have that 
horrible stain upon us because of our sin. And if it was up to us, we would be hopeless. But you love us. Your word says that you loved us so much you sent your one and only son. Hmm. Jesus, you came and you died on the cross to pay the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And simply by our putting our trust in you, we're completely forgiven, washed clean. And so we do. We thank you for your cleansing. And now we want to serve you. Equip us, all of us. Show us your plan. Use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't experienced this initial forgiveness and cleansing, draw them to yourself. Help them to see that simply by confessing to you and placing their faith in Jesus and outwardly expressing that in baptism, they're completely washed clean. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand and worship our great God.